0: hit me with the beep beep
1: Dave is that what you think that noise is like if you had to write down an air horn without saying air horn would you write down beep beep
0: No I'd probably write down meow
2: How do you how would you write down meow
0: Um I don't know I haven't thought about it hasn't Jesus. had to do it
1: yet M U shwa h
0: <laughs>
1: that's morning. more like
2: moi. mwah Moi? Moi? Moi. morning welcome to don't Feed the artist i'm hagan
0: i'm dave i'm adam
2: and
1: i'm jackson this week we're doing a deep dive of aberdeen washington or as most people think seattle washington's nirvana um we just i'm gonna go ahead and get this off the uh you know off in the front because I know there are probably people who are listening to this like, oh shit, they're doing Nirvana. Yes, we are doing all three of their albums. No insecticide is not one of their albums. I will fight anyone about that. And <laughs> then um, there's just like there's no way uh, we can capture everything in this episode. We're hoping to kind of stick with, uh, you know, a bit of the historical, Stuff of it and then get really just talk about the music. That's kind of the idea of this. So, uh, if we didn't mention your favorite Kurt Cobain or Dave Grohl story, that's because it didn't happen and it sucks. So, you're welcome. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> Off to a great start. <laughs> if you can't tell, uh, listening to um, Nirvana in 2020 in the middle of an Isolating, physically and emotionally isolating pandemic put me in a bad mood. So we'll, we'll get say. into that. But <laughs> so Nirvana, most people know them, but if you don't, it is they're primarily a trio uh, made up of Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl. All of those names I've heard pronounced many different ways. Yeah, but that's how Selic. I'm going to say it. Yeah, it really, you know, I don't think it matters too much. If any band, I think they wouldn't give a shit how you uh, s- pronounce their names. Right.
0: So. At least at least uh, one of them can't express their
1: opinions on it. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, right. We don't let drummers what talk. What
2: the? F- Are we already there? We're already <laughs> there. I mean, you know.
0: You know you know, what I'm talking about. Yeah, Dave
2: Grohl uh,
3: yeah. doesn't like anybody talking
0: about him. <laughs>
1: Yeah, big big spoiler alert! Nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Nirvana is most notably called a grunge band, the biggest grunge band, whatever you want to call them. I would argue, yes, they are a grunge band. I know that they have a lot of pop elements, and that's why they were so popular. But the band themselves, obviously, because they are uh, teen angst ridden, uh, did not like the uh, moniker of. Grunge. So, whatever you want to call them, but we all know who they are. I need to get this negative cloud off of my head so we can just get into the episode. But I just (laughs) want to go ahead and start this with we all know Nirvana here. All four of us know Nirvana. And I would venture to say we all love them. I like Nirvana is one of those bands that I would put up there at this point, especially for me. Like, they're like a Led Zeppelin band of like, you just kind of like. Everybody listens to them, you know, everybody's heard of them. Uh, Doesn't mean you have to like them, but it's like the Beatles. I really respect the Beatles, but I don't like the Beatles. I love Nirvana. They are one of those bands that I think everyone needs to listen to, but I get it if you don't like it and it's not for you. But this is one of those instances where uh, I really, I, I love Nirvana, and we'll get into the details of the albums and what we really think of them, but, you know... I I think they're fucking amazing at, you know, the very least.
2: Yeah, I I would agree. I would agree with that sentiment. I think that it's important to, they're definitely a band that's important to listen to. Everybody, everybody's heard them already, but they're important to dive deep into their discography. Um, It's it's something that you should respect uh, musically. I will say from my perspective, I wasn't like, I didn't, I didn't get super into Nirvana until I got super into Dave Grawl and the Foo Fighters, which is unfortunate, uh, on some level. But I would say that uh, I mean I don't know from my again from my perspective, I didn't really, I still didn't really like Nirvana that much even after I got into them. I was like, oh yeah, this is good, but I just want to listen to Foo Fighters. Like I like I want to listen to Dave Grohl do stuff, but it's not my favorite, you know
0: yeah they were formed uh two years before I was born so I mean I didn't really have I didn't uh have a super big connection to them when I was at that stage of my life but pretty quickly after you know getting out of my boy band phase and getting into you know heavier stuff, Nirvana was right there, especially the unplugged in New York. I think that was the first thing I heard from them
3: yeah I think Nirvana is one of those bands that everybody knows and has heard probably most of their stuff at least the stuff that was singles and all that it's for me it's never like been a band I just go back and listen to all the time but they're important for I think everybody to have heard because it's clear where their influence and legacy goes
0: it's been fun to see my fiance my fiance is like she's not a musician and she's you know because we're we're together she gets a lot of influence of music from me and uh I think last year or sometime we started listening to Nirvana again and she was like, I can't believe I, I missed this. Like, and she, so I'm watching her like discover uh, the deep cuts.
1: Yeah. I had a kind of similar experience with my partner this week and I was listening to stuff and she was like, oh shit, I forgot how good bleach is or wow. Yeah, no. And Utero is like, that's the album. And I was just like, I was so proud. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> these are good things to say. Um, a, a couple pieces of housekeeping before we move on into the actual records. The years that Nirvana was active were um, 1987 to 1994. Seven and years. That Yeah. And then I would also like to just from the top, I'll just discuss all, or I just want to name all the past drummers. So if there's any kind of asshole who's like super into like, oh yeah, Nirvana had so many drummers and you just got to mention them all. I'm just going to go ahead and say them all. Uh, up until Dave Grohl. So you got Aaron Burkhardt, Dale Crover, Dave Foster, and Chad Channing. And then you have Dave Grohl. So I just want to go ahead and mention all those names off the top, but primarily we're going to be talking about three of those people and like barely talking about the fourth one. Um, So uh, if that is all good with you guys, I say we just go ahead and we. Get into the first album, Bleach, in 1989. Let's go. This album is the first and only uh, album that came out on Sub Pop Records, which is now this... I think this album is really the reason why everybody uh, still talks about Sub Pop. And And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just think there's a lot of people who idolize Sub Pop because they discovered Nirvana or they put out Nirvana's first album and this is um their this was and still is Sub Pop's best-selling album by a long shot and it doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime soon.
2: But if that's ever. really it's really important to note that that didn't happen initially before no they didn't, oh, yeah. they
1: didn't get along.
2: Before before uh um Nevermind came out this had only sold forty thousand copies. I say only, but like in the grand scheme of Nirvana's like selling and what this album looks like later, it really didn't do too hot.
1: For a a, a signed band right. in nineteen eighty nine, I don't think that's those aren't great numbers, even if they are really good nowadays.
0: Right. I think, I think it's worth noting too that um, Sub Pop was like a, a DIY label and it was run by the kids that were involved in the local scene in Seattle at the time. Um, yeah. That's still a lot of albums for an indie label, I would say, but they also didn't promote it as much as they promoted their, their other artists.
1: And I think there were a lot of uh, discussions or uh, things that I saw that sub pop, they delayed like releasing it or things like that because they had to, you know, put together the money to actually distribute it. that. That kind of stuff. So really the sub-pop we know nowadays, it was not what it was at that time. And also what this album created was, and the label hates this name and so does anyone on the record label, all that kind of stuff. Uh, The sub-pop sound is something like this. And I would argue it's still to this day, um, if you don't know the band Bully, and you like Nirvana, you would love the band Bully. They're super similar in sound. And guess what? They're on sub pop. Um, and that's not a dig at all. But the sub pop sound is definitely a thing. Um, I really did. You guys see how this um, this record was named?
0: No, I was actually trying to. I was hoping I would come across that.
3: I figured that would be a trivia question. <laughs> Sorry. Now, apparently fuck. this
1: week's uh, trivia is only about money, so we can't mention money at all. What
2: the guys. fuck is this spoiler? What are you what are you doing, uh, man? The, the podcast is yet. just about
3: money at this point. That's, that's oh, fine. We're only here God. for the money to our from our you There's know, no, five fucking,
2: no fucking respect. No fucking respect for my work in the quizzes. Just I give it get away. No respect. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to what you were saying about the names, Jesus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this name, the name of this album was Kurt uh, Cobain saw Calm this down. this little um this sign mm-hmm. that said bleach works before you get stoned, and he found out what that means is there was this ad campaign that said bleach works before you get stoned because there was an AIDS epidemic, and uh it was really widespread because people were uh, taking heroin needles and reusing them. And so instead of trying to get people to stop doing that, reusing them, they put out this ad campaign saying, hey, if you bleach the needle before you use it, you you won't get uh, AIDS, which is just, it's a grim thought for an equally grim album.
0: Yeah, <laughs> this album is dark
1: yeah and I, I that that's a huge critique of the album is that even though it's grunge it is very the the lyrical content is just super bleak and Kurt Cobain was uh quoted as saying that he he was known for not writing his lyrics out prior to to getting to the studio or he would do it like the night before or he'd do it at the time. His focus was um, the music and then he would get on the lyrics. So what he said, the reason why they came out the way they did is he wrote them all the night before he did his vocals And he was, at that time, felt really pressured by everyone in his scene to be a grunge band and all that kind of stuff, and that put him in a really negative headspace. And so he said all the lyrics just uh, were that written that night when he was really angry and upset that he felt really pigeonholed by that, which I love the idea that this now kind of really popular album was just in one night conceived, at least the lyrical content.
0: And all the the there a, a lot of the songs have very repetitive lyrics. So I mean, you know, makes sense. Do you think that he did that as a function uh, to fill up the songs, or you know, I wonder if he did it to to make a statement about the lyrics? Because he also yeah. is quoted as saying he doesn't give a shit about them, and that people shouldn't really look into them from that yeah. album.
2: I think I think I was I think I'll say like uh, something that I've like heard a lot about like hurt the a common criticism about Kurt Cobain is that his lyrics are uh not necessarily a lot that you can find content and meaning behind them, but they sometimes can feel a little half-assed, right? Cause it's like, he's writing them so quickly and he says things like you shouldn't pay attention to that. And then there's the repetitive thing. I honestly just think he was a kid. I like it. When you look too deep into the lyrics, you, you can find, I mean, we talked about this plenty of times with other bands, but like you can find whatever meaning you want to in certain things. And that's a great thing. Uh, but I think he was just a kid. I think if there's repetitive lyrics that, you know, I think maybe he just was like, yeah, that'll be cool. Why not?
0: Yeah. But the other thing, too, is there are so many documentarians and ass kissers of Nirvana that yeah. want to make money off of their legacy that they read into these lyrics so much that like, I've you know, I've seen people uh, when I was researching for this describe like, oh, this song is about Kurt's fledgling relationship with his. Uh, current girlfriend as he was going into the studio and his frustration with the label and his parents
2: like maybe maybe it is he was he was a kid i mean he could it could easily be about those things but like there, the like the blasé attitude that he had about the whole thing and so many interviews just kind of seems like yeah it it might be but like, it sounds like he's just, I mean, it's the same kind of shit that if you knew any sort of, like, emotional songwriter when you were younger, or if you are younger, it might come across the same way. And that's not a bad thing. I don't I don't necessarily agree with those criticisms. I understand them, though. But I don't, I like, they, to me, they come across as a young person writing emotional lyrics. It doesn't come across as, like, look at all of this shit behind it. It might be. <laughs> there might be, but...
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that he claimed most of the lyrics were written like the night before recording is you really... he said it was
0: like 80% or something? Yeah, yeah, like
3: that's really telling that there's not a lot of depth to it, probably. Like if you're reading into it and you can get that out of it, then, you know, cool, I guess it was good songwriting into that, you know, to that point. But it doesn't have to mean there was intention behind it.
1: Right. I, th- I think when somebody gets into Nir- Nirvana this is probably how it goes. They listen to Nevermind, and then if they really like that, they move on, they listen to In Utero. And then if they like that and they want to dig deeper, they go into Bleach. That's how that happened for me, and I would I would guess that that's how it happens for most people. And I remember getting into Bleach after years of listening to Nirvana, and I don't know why I put it off for so long, but then when I finally did it, I was like, oh, shit, this is actually a really good album. And I remember like, having it right up there with uh, Nevermind and In Utero, and then re-listening to it, it is still a, a great record, especially with how the production quality and all that kind of stuff, but it's it doesn't hold up as much as I thought it would. I mean, there are songs like About A Girl is probably the closest uh, to a love song that Kurt Cobain ever wrote, and I think it's a really great song, quality rise like uh, like uh songwriting wise is great but the actual production for me i was just like ah, oh, you know this is a great song but it, it does feel kind of shitty in a bad way and then i mean for me uh there's a, my favorite song on the album is scoff and that's the one that's like give me back my alcohol and it has like the double kick drum in it uh, that's the only time
2: on this record that i was like fuck yeah those drums sound good I, I I thought the drums the drums on this album surprised me. I didn't expect them to be, uh, really 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 good. But there were moments where I was like, oh, th- this is really like on the nose, but it sounds cool. Um, I think that the thing about the writing musically on this album is that uh, again, it felt like they it felt like kids. I mean, there were there were riffs and moments that I was like, I'm pretty sure, uh, my high school band probably played a very similar riff to this one day in practice. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, it, and that's again, it's not a bad thing, but it's just like, oh, it's so because it, and, and, and like the production was good, but it's it still was like, I feel that this this feels familiar to me. This like it feels like I'm being taken back to like 16 year old me in a room with my friends jamming for the first time. Well, I wonder how
1: that like if that would still be happening if it weren't for Nirvana, like if high school riffs in the 80s, like in 1980, sounded like this or did they sound like really shitty Rush covers, that kind of stuff so I wonder how much of this kind of, you know, seeped into our high school riffage because I completely agree with you and I I did want to ask you guys how you how the three of you felt about the drums on this record and the reason why I asked that is because all of y'all are Big Dave Grohl fans, and as what? we all know, this is a pre-Grohl album. It's <laughs> mostly Chad Channing on the drums. Um, I think there's another drummer on a song or two. Yeah, but Dale
0: Crover uh, of the Melvins played drums on "Floyd the Barber," "Paper Cuts," and "Downer." It, yeah, but the rest was, were it, Chad Channing.
2: It was from three previous sessions, and yeah. they like tried to re-record it with Chad, but it just ended up working. Where they kept it and just remixed it with Dale.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's still uh, when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Dave Grohl thanked Chad Channing for the for the influence of how to play, you know, not necessarily how to play <clears throat> going forward in the band, but like giving him ideas on what to play. I think when they play these songs live with Dave Grohl, he pretty much plays the same stuff. Yeah, because so, I, I don't know. I think it's good.
2: I think the thing is, is that like when Dave Grohl eventually joins the band and he plays, it, it it's fitting but I think that uh, what makes it so powerful is that Dave Grawl is a powerful and uh, just individual drummer. Not necessarily, yes, his parts are individual, but there's something about the force behind what he plays. There's something about the energy and the way that he plays it. So I do think that Chad Channing did a good job on this album, and I do think that he set up Dave Grawl really nicely to take it home.
0: I think the double pedal sound's really out of place.
2: It Yeah, but but it, but it's it's it also is... Uh, um, again, young kids, you know, they're, they're jamming and they're like, you know, how could I make this heavier and double pedal? I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been a thing in music for, you know, since like the early 1900s, but it, you know, putting it in context of rock music wasn't, still wasn't a popular thing at this time. It had been done, but it wasn't like, you know, it, you know, there's the handful of bands that did it. Um, so it probably was like, yeah, it's cool. Let's make it heavier, you know? Which is exactly what I fucking did when I was 16. As I, as I was like, I want a double pedal because it's heavier, it's cooler.
0: <laughs> Adam, what'd you think?
3: I was going to say, I think this album, like, it, you can see how they got to Nevermind really easily from this album. Yeah, for sure. And it's surprising to me how similar it is listening to them back to back. In that, like, it's, there's not a big change between them other than, yeah. I mean, obviously, Dave Roll joins the band, but... It's not dramatically different or anything like that.
0: Especially in songs like Jackson mentioned earlier about a girl, like yeah. that that could have been on
2: Nevermind. Easily, easily could have been on Nevermind. Yeah.
3: I was gonna say to to what Hagen mentioned earlier about it sounding good too, I expected this to not sound as good listening to it all all the way through, which I don't think I had probably ever done. And it's surprising that it sounds as good as it does.
0: Yeah, I had to listen to the remaster. I couldn't um uh, couldn't track down the original mix.
1: I have my CD of the original mix somewhere, but I wasn't going to try and fucking find that. But there was also one note that I have here is that the song Negative Creep, which is a pretty good song, um, it the, the song ends with a fade out where Cobain is repeating the lyrics, Johnny's little girl ain't a girl no more, which leads me to think that the band had no clue how to get out of the song and they just probably did that for a while and then just kind of were like, ah, and it dissolved or it just stopped. And that becomes, uh, you know, when you hear stories of them in the studio, um, that was something they did is they did jam a lot, even though they were very much, you know, in the punk roots and th- they really saw themselves as a punk band. And that's why they resisted calling themselves grunge. But uh, most people don't think of punk groups as jamming, but they were really known for being able to just jam and really like just riff on it. And that also goes for Cobain's lyrics, which is really interesting because when we're now, this is such a legacy, a, a band with a legacy that they're always releasing these uh, anniversary editions of these albums with like 40 extra tracks and they're all jams and that kind of stuff and they're all really good. So um and that's also the reason why we stuck with stuck with 3 albums yeah. because there's so much material. I had uh that box set growing up of um it had like uh, there're three faces on it and it had like I don't know like 200 or 100 fucking songs on it. Oh, was that many. the
0: one that came out with uh when they released you know you're right
1: yeah that's the one no wait no i don't think it was that one because that one was really recent because that was steeped in controversy which i guess we'll talk about another time um so overall i think this is a really good album but as i said i think it's probably not where you want to start with nirvana but if you're super into nirvana and for some reason haven't listened to this i mean I don't know why. So just go listen to it. There's great tracks on it. Uh, Love Buzz was the single off the album, and that's uh, you know a cover, which I didn't know when I first heard it, and I was like, wow, yeah, this I song mean- really stands out. And uh, I think the reason why it stood out is with such a young band like this, they didn't have to worry too much about the writing portion. They were just like, okay, how do we make this our own? So I think it kind of stood out for that reason.
0: I go back and forth with that song. Sometimes I'm like, it's, I'm so annoyed by that stupid bass line. And then other times I'm just like, I really enjoy this song. But I, I will say that this was my first time listening the full way through the album from front to back. And uh, I, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like the production. I don't like the sounds that they used. I think, the, I think a lot of the riffs were very surprising and they're great. I think Kurt's screaming throughout various points of the record is like, kind of bone chilling to be that young and have that kind of kind of voice. He's got a lot of just angst and anger on those vocal tracks. uh, But I just can't stand the production. And it was uh, that's nothing against Jack and Dino, the guy that produced it. But um, yeah, I can't stand it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think there are albums that have really low production quality. I would argue most of Elliot Smith's catalog has a really low production value. Right. And it's amazing. It doesn't take anything away from his music at all. I do agree with Dave, though, in this instance, that the production value does take it... Like, if you were to give this song five stars, and you start at five stars and then start taking away as you get through the record for the you know docking points style... I would say that that immediately docks off like at least one star. So yeah, yeah, uh, I'm with you there, Dave.
0: I think a cool thing to mention is uh, in the lyrics to "Paper Cuts," Kurt says the name of the band. He says Nirvana several times. I didn't know that.
1: (laughs) Me neither.
2: Do you do that when you watch a television show or a movie and they say the name of the movie? Do you do do you go, "Oh, that's cool." Is that?
1: I feel like
0: it's not the same thing.
1: No, you just yell "Roll credits." (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) And that's the aristocrats.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like it's not the same thing, Hagen.
2: I I I, you know, that's fine. That's totally fine. That's you know, you you do you do you, Boo. You do you. You think you think whatever you want. That's why
1: we're the Marvel's Avengers.
2: He said it. He said it.
0: (laughs) It's not the same thing.
2: All right, are you guys ready for the money game? Because Jackson gave it away. Money! Yeah, can we call this the money shot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah. yeah. That's perfect. This is the money shot. So uh, um, I think I know Jackson and Dave know the answer to this one. I don't, I, Adam, did you, did you say that you know the answer to this one already? No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. If he so.
0: gets it wrong, uh, we have to do shots.
2: Okay, so here, here, here yeah, so uh, I'm gonna the the exact number is is very specific, so I just rounded it. So if you get the 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 rounded number, uh, that's great. If you know the exact number, even better. And uh, there is a bonus question to this as well. Yes. Hey Adam,
1: if you know the exact number, I will Venmo you the exact number
2: right now. <laughs> Holy shit! Oh shit! <laughs> to the cent.
3: No, I don't know the exact number. That's Adam, so
2: but funny. But you gotta keep your hands up. I'll text you, Adam. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, so um how much uh was Nirvana billed for the recording of Bleach? A twelve hundred dollars, B seven hundred dollars, C one hundred dollars, D six hundred dollars.
3: Somewhere between B and D. I'll so go you gotta with, you, you gotta go, go with six hundred.
2: Can you give me the exact? Right, can you give me the exact number?
3: I don't remember six hundred like twenty something.
2: Oh, that's, we, that's we,
0: enough left over for McDonald's.
2: We were looking for six hundred and six dollars and seventeen cents. They were billed that much for the recording time. Now the bonus question is: How did they pay for it? Who wants to take it?
0: Uh, I know the answer. Adam, do you know the answer? No. Uh, Okay, well, double or nothing. If you get it wrong, (laughs) we either do a shot.
1: I have no no clue what was it they played a show for gas money or some type
2: of shit. No, no, Adam, do you have you have any guess how they paid for it? Uh, No idea. So uh, Jason Everman, who was briefly the second guitar player of the band, he uh, he also was like a fan of their demos. Okay, I didn't know this then. I didn't realize that's the question. I did know this. He paid for it because he had a job. He had a job, and they didn't have jobs. And he liked their uh, demo,
1: right? So he liked
2: the was, demo. Yeah, that was, that was, it, was the, basically. Well, he liked the demo, and he did play with them for a little bit as a second guitar player. Um, but, but, the, but, yeah, he liked them, and he had a job, so he paid for it.
0: He's actually on the album cover.
3: Yeah, but not
2: on not on the album.
1: No. And they, but they did credit him on yes. the album as a guitar player, even though he didn't play anything. Which uh, cool guy move on you guys, Nirvana? So uh, you know somebody bankrolled your whole fucking album. I um, <laughs> yeah.
2: got aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that that's a that's a super fun fact I think about about that album. That's like it's so strange how little that cost, and it's also. No, it got, makes sense. They only got billed for thirty hours. They right. got built. I mean, like they, and they, and it took them. It took them over a month or about a month to record it, and they only got billed for thirty hours. That didn't really add up in my head. Uh, so
0: it's it's a weird coincidence that uh, Dave Grohl's studio is named Six Oh Six.
2: That is a real coincidence. Damn, conspiracy time.
0: Yeah, because he wasn't in
2: the band. So, at the conspiracy point.
3: time with Dave
2: Grohl.
1: <laughs> Speaking of Dave Grohl. In between 1989's Bleach and their next record, Dave Grohl joined the band. He was the sixth drummer. He was extremely young. He was the youngest of the band, but like extremely young when he started playing music, he was playing drums in the punk band Scream, who I've never listened to, but I have heard they're very good. Um, And you guys love Dave Grohl, so um, I'm really happy for you guys that Dave Grohl is now in the episode. Um, they started working on this album, and they their next album, and they really wanted to release it under Sub Pop, and they were um Sub Pop just kind of said, you know, you're getting courted by these really big um, record labels. There was a lot of buzz behind them, but not so much to what they were going to become. Just kind of like a hey, this band is a worthwhile investment, and so despite the band being very scared uh, of going up into the big leagues. They were kinda pushed out by Sub Pop saying, like, no, you need to do this. Like, this is the right move for you. And they did it and they signed on to DGC. Um I had no clue what that record label was, uh, until this episode. But, you know, apparently it's a uh division of Interscope uh Geffen A and M records. So I do know I wonder Interscope if it's, Geffen. Um,
0: David Geffen. I wonder if that's what two of the initials are.
3: It probably is. It is, Dave. Good job. It's David Geffen Company.
0: (laughs) Fucking nailed it. I fucking nailed it.
1: (laughs) There you go. The album I am referring to, everyone knows, is 1991's Nevermind. Um, It's the Naked Baby album, as we all know. I remember buying it with the sticker over the baby dick which was interesting (laughs) um i I love that there's interviews to this day with that baby like uh, that guy is known as oh you're the nirvana baby that kind of thing um yes the baby was actually uh taken uh underwater to take that picture and then i think they added the dollar bill in there later very funny uh the baby from Nevermind is doing well nowadays. Uh, just so everyone <laughs> knows, I think uh, he's a normal guy. The,
2: uh, the 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 modern day equivalent to that is every time someone who's been in a meme gets interviewed, like, <laughs> like yes, I, I was. Uh, what's the? Oh man, now all of the memes have left my brain. Oh well, that like old man, the cringing old man yeah, face, yeah. like that's some like
1: Austrian or German guy who. Uh, He's done TED talks of like positivity and all that kind of stuff. It's crazy. He's spun a whole career from that. Yeah. Um we all know never mind. It's really I don't want to go track for track on this. It's 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 never mind, guys. They they got Butch Vig for it who um he was in the band well, um Garbage.
2: Um What's up, Pagan? Well, uh a really important thing is so this album came out in September of 91. And by January of 92, it was number one on the charts, approximately selling 300,000 copies a week. And it kicked Michael Jackson off the number one slot. (laughs) Those are that. Whenever I heard that, I was just, I was blown away. I mean, like, of course, of course, Nevermind did well, but. It's insane to think about the fact that when it did well, it kicked Michael Jackson off the number one spot.
0: And he was mad for two reasons one, that it kicked him out of the number one spot, and two, that the band stole his idea of having a naked baby
1: on the. On the, spot. <laughs> the only reason I'm not going to edit that out is Michael Jackson is probably not a great dude. So, so I'll, another. Uh, you're off on a technicality, Dave.
2: Yes. Another uh, another like weird, just real quick like tangential thing from uh, another band during that time is that um, uh, it's about Nevermind too. But when when Nirvana was like doing really well from Nevermind, they got a fax from Metallica that said, "We really dig Nirvana. Nevermind is the best album of the year. Let's get together soon, Metallica. P.S. Lars hates the band. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lars hates uh, Nirvana." <laughs> fucking lars you can't
1: change my mind on lars i've already flipped on him
2: (laughs) it's a nice try but it's not gonna work i don't need to change your mind that that is just the funniest fucking thing that like the imagine the other three members like god nevermind's a great album lars is just like i don't like it i don't like nirvana no no he he could like (laughs) the album but he just hates the people yeah okay okay yeah So
1: Nevermind is arguably the band's most polished record and I want to I want to put that on the shelf for just a moment but I do want to discuss that but what I found particularly amazing about this album is how it mainly consists only of the core elements and what I mean by that is drums, bass, guitar and vocals. There are hardly any intricate layering. There's not a lot of pianos. There are a couple of string arrangements, but they're very sparing. That kind of stuff is there, but and the way I see it is, this is like truly a testament to the songwriting. The quality is it's it's such top shelf stuff, uh, and it sh- it brought like really heavy music to the
2: masses. Um, and really captures teen angst at the time. I would say I would say that like the songwriting is insanely important there, but also the players and the way that they because I mean you can't you can have a really good song that doesn't need two guitar players, but you have to have the right guitar player and bass player and drummer to play that and get away with it, right? right. I mean, it's like as a not to toot our own horns as Moniker, but as a trio, like how many situations could you imagine? Like, could you imagine a, like another bass player, for example, in Moniker, could they get away with the same thing that Dave does as a bass player, right? I mean, it's like it's it. it you have to have the right people to make those kinds of sounds happen.
1: No, I absolutely could not imagine another bass player in our band. We only have one bass player. Only, only ever only had one. Has one. ever been there.
2: Never
3: had another one. Don't go look at the the credits on the album. <laughs>
0: Holy fuck! I didn't say shit. I didn't say shit. You can now. Uh uh-uh. uh. We said it all for you.
1: the The songs on this record are just so steeped in pop culture nowadays, it's really hard to listen in a vacuum. I tried really hard. I listened to this maybe two or three times uh, this week, trying to just remove myself from the situation and just be like, all right, this isn't Smells Like Teen Spirit. This is not the song I hear at the Texas State Fair every year. This is not that. But I couldn't do it. you have songs, I'll just, you know, we all know the songs, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Bloom," Come As You Are, Lithium. It goes on and on. And I just, all of them are great. I, I never listened to one of those album or one of those songs, even Smells Like Teen Spirit, when I was listening to this, which I didn't realize was five minutes long until looking at it, like actively right now. I was like, holy shit, that song's five minutes long? Fuck yeah. Um but i i never felt while listening to those huge songs like wow i really don't want to be listening to in bloom right now in bloom has one of the best drum uh lines in it of all time and i'm not a huge dave grohl fan and like i just will like credit where credit is due to that man and his drumming in this fucking band um I mean, how do you guys feel about the mega hits on the album? Because there are songs on here that I I would argue almost every song on here is a mega hit, but there are songs on here that I love, uh, like Breed and Territorial Pissings, which aren't the huge songs, but uh, it contains probably one of my favorite lyrics of all time, which is, just because you're paranoid don't mean they're not after you i think that's a super cool line and i remember as a kid just like humming that to myself and thinking like man that's so badass Uh, the fuck yeah that
0: sounds like a sounds like it could be a tom york lyric
1: oh yeah exactly um but what do you guys feel about like those mega hits like the smell like teen spirits and stuff like that
0: i get to uh sometimes i get to play smells like teen spirit in uh one of the bands that i play in and at first i was like okay yeah we're gonna play smells like teen spirit and then like Halfway through the song, I was like, realized that I was rocking the fuck out because I had never gotten a chance to play it. It It's like living out a childhood (laughs) moment there. Um, I, aside from that song, when actively listening to this record, none of the other songs have any pop culture connection for me. It's purely just from being a kid and listening to it. And it really, especially now having, you know, gone to school for music and been playing music for quite a while, I've grown even more. Uh, to to respect the musicianship on this album, especially you know Dave Grohl's drumming, of course, but just the the interesting chord progressions that Kirk comes up with that's different. Like I feel like uh, on Bleach he was doing a lot of riff riff based things, but in this on this album, of course, there are some really great riffs, but it's the chord progressions for me that are really interesting, and I don't know it's of course it's my favorite Nirvana record.
2: <laughs> Dave Dave, what do you think just in general about about Chris Novoselic?
0: I think he's a really creative bass player. I would say that he's underrated. Yeah. Um he's got some really interesting choices that he makes. Uh there's a couple of notes in Spells Like Teen Spirit that I don't know. When they do the da, he does yeah. not play those notes. And I right. can't really figure it out or ever remember what they are like I've learned it and I can't remember it um, he does a lot of creative things and I love his tone but I hate watching him play
2: <laughs> is it is is it why because it's, it's too low no it's, I, I, it's because he's six seven it's because he's a giant David, yeah
0: and his base is like five feet from his face yeah
2: yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> and like he holds the pick real weird and, he does uh, but he somehow manages to pull it off I mean Imagine playing with Dave Grohl at that time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I'll say that about any of these songs, uh, as a drum teacher, whenever any uh, student wants to learn, especially Smells Like Teen Spirit, it's like, Fuck Yes, this is gonna be great. I love I love when people realize how simple every bit of what is on that like the drum parts like there's nothing that's like too complicated, but they like it takes it takes every student every drummer, a little bit of time to like really take in the fact that this isn't crazy intense complication. This is just the best playing you're gonna hear. So whenever they start to realize, oh, this is simple, they start to like lax on it. And I'm like, does that sound like the way? that that Dave Grohl plays it like no it doesn't I'm like right hit harder you know get into it because that's what Butch Vig talks about is like w- the moment that that he heard Dave Grohl play that intro there was something that just lit up with him it's like
0: right there's just yeah. there's just something there chris said within 2 minutes they knew that he was the guy for the band yeah and like butch vig was also quoted as uh saying that kurt cobain left him a voicemail it was like you got to hear this drummer we have the best fucking drummer in the world <laughs> it's like yeah. that I was also really surprised, especially, you know, when researching for this and re-listening to this record, his time was so
2: good. Oh, yeah. Big time. Like,
0: there's some stuff on with uh, Queens where there's one song in particular, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's not super solid. And I, I like that in some senses, but I can't remember which track it is on this record. There's one part where he's playing hi-hat and he's just going, and I was like, I asked myself, is that programmed?
2: Yeah, right yeah it's he he has a he has like such a such a really good uh, energy about him. so even if he is out of time, it's like okay, that's out of time but like if he, if he's like rushing or anything which he tends to do, it's like okay, that's fine. but on this, I don't feel anything weird. It no. just feels like they're sitting so perfectly together, which again goes back to that trio thing. Um, so yeah I I, I I do also really want us to make sure we talk about butch Vig. Because I, you know, talking about the songwriting and the players is, is one thing, but Butch Vig, I think made this album uh, infinitely better. I think that he made those songs, he made, he made some calls that just made it better every single time he said something, which is insane. Yeah, his production work
1: on this album earned him the nickname, The Never Mind Man, which I don't think he would have minded or does mind. And also, if you're curious where they recorded this, it was at the infamous Sound City Studios. And yes, that is the studios that um, Dave Grohl did the documentary, Sound City, which is an incredible documentary. So, you know, there is a bit of history there. Um, what, do you, what do you guys think about the going from Bleach, which is this like really just like lackluster production value to this, nevermind which is easily their most polished record
3: i mean it's it's really obvious somebody handed them a bunch of money
0: yeah <laughs> yeah and i think it suits them really well i, I really it, it this is uh such a step forward and i i would imagine that you know with kurt's frustration on the first album uh that he was much happier in this setting i think what did they, did they record there for two months or three months or something
2: yeah i i think so i think the thing is is that after the fact kurt cobain is super upset and calls the the sound of this album candy ass and uh <laughs> it's like it's so it's so silly because it's it's like i get where you're coming from from like some level because you want it to sound raw and like grunge and punk and whatever but like it sound like it doesn't matter if it sounds mainstream or radio friendly or whatever. I mean, like the songs are still the songs and the production quality just helps.
1: So there is one thing that when you're watching the interviews of Nirvana, just, I mean, and there really aren't interviews before this, uh, because this is what catapulted them. um, This record. When you watch those interviews, it's easy to be like, wow, these guys are just like, pissing and moaning about the the thing that made them huge and super successful, this thing that they arguably wanted. Um, and I think a lot of people can write it off of like, ah, oh, wow, like Kurt Cobain's just bitching. But for me, uh, if you can take a step back, I think it's really easy to understand the band's apathy towards this record, towards Nevermind, because in a sense, the album was taken from them. And what I mean by that is it's kind of a double-edged sword because yes it gave them this huge success, but also it can no longer, you know, feel like it belongs to the artist at that point. It is now in the public space and some people really respect that and want that. But I don't think Nirvana was ready for that. And I don't think any of the players, you know, expected it to happen so quickly because it was released. And when the music video um, for smells like teen spirit, got huge on mtv it was the 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 record was no longer theirs and i think that's where that apathy and all of them complaining about the record and how it sounds i think that's where it came from they weren't prepared for it and yeah
2: i i i understand the complaints on some level because i mean it it it, but i i i do think that there's a level of it that's just like I don't know, get over it. But then again, they're kids. So, I mean, like they're still they're still so young. I mean, it, I, I, I can't imagine being in their position in any level, you know. Um, so I I, I I can look at it and I can say all day, like, don't call – like how dare you call this candy ass when it just sounds so good and everything about this is great. But then at the same time, like I can't put myself in his in, in any of their shoes. I can't. There's no way. Um, I can't even begin to try to understand how they were feeling, uh, being kids from this underground, you know, grunge punk scene, and suddenly having this insane mainstream success. You know, they're 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 driving to their 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 tour their tour gigs still in like a shitty van with a U-Haul behind them. They're 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 still in this mindset playing smaller club gigs when they can play bigger. You know, they're still doing the same things. But suddenly everything else is bigger for them,
0: right? And there's this that, that great story of Dave Grohl talking about how they wanted uh, they wanted to get a new drum set, but the label wouldn't give them the money for it because they weren't making a lot of money while they were on tour. So Dave Grohl was told Kurt Cobain, like, "Hey, I want at the end of the set, I want you to just thrash the shit out of my drum set. Let's force the label to buy me a new one." Um, it makes me think about the fact that I I would I would pose that record labels. Um, at the onset of bands or artists catching that sort of uh, uh, of all-of-a-sudden fame should be required to put those artists with a really great therapist and make them be involved in a panel uh, with other more successful artists to help them prepare for what they're about to go through.
1: Yeah, yeah. there was a great interview that Michael Stipe did after Kurt Cobain died And Michael Stipe is the singer of R.E.M., who Kurt apparently idolized. And he came out and said, you know, nobody, no matter who you are, nobody is prepared to be famous. It doesn't matter if it's what you have wanted your whole life. It doesn't matter if it happened overnight or gradually. But no one's prepared for that. And, you know, you either just kind of are able to live within it and find your own little pocket of reality or you start fabricating your own reality and say, okay, I am this big thing that they say I am. And then you either can live in that. But as soon as it's gone, it's like rug pulled out from under you. So, you know, it's not just Nirvana who dealt with this. It seems it's everyone. And the people who seem like they've really handled it well, like the, you know, the, the actors, your Keanu Reeves that people think you can really relate to is like, wow, they're so round. It's just like, no, I I think all of them are grappling with this. And yeah, it's it's a crazy. It's impossible not thing. to. I think Kurt yeah. was
0: quoted as saying, like, you know, when enough people tell you you're a god, you start to believe it. Do we know at this point uh, where
2: his heroin abuse is at? Oh, it's it's get, it's getting. Is it full fledged? It's getting kicked off. It's getting it's getting going. Um, which we'll 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 get into that later.
1: Yeah, I do want to say that my favorite song on the record, and it's not because it's not one of the huge hits, is the arguably closing track, Something in the Way. I think oh, that yeah. track is just pinnacle of songwriting. It is beautiful. It is quite possibly a perfect song in my eyes. And it's just, we'll get into it another day, but just talking about, like, if you know the story behind the lyrics of that and just like, the performance, it's almost like he's whispering. It is just like, it's kind of, it's heartbreaking. And listening to this was just like, it put me in like a bad headspace this this week, just thinking about all that stuff.
0: He recorded it laying down on a couch with like, uh, I think the acoustic he was playing only had like four or five strings. And he basically was whispering. Butch Vig talks about how he had to put a microphone like close to his face. And I don't know if they mic'd the guitar at all so the recording i think
1: it was out of tune and yeah, it was the out of tune. the cellist who came in was like wait what the fuck is this like and had to like <laughs> either detune or play the notes slightly off which wow fuck you for making any session musician have to figure that out That's so, so and I, th- I think
0: my favorite song is uh, for that similar reason is polly but i love in particular when he says uh when he says polly says when it's just him and his voice and bass and then he goes into the verse. I I just can't help but wonder if that was a mistake. Or you know, he says Polly said and then the actual lyric is Polly says when he comes in. I wonder if he was like, yeah, just leave that in there.
1: Yeah. I think they did. I mean, that they seem like that kind of band and my favorite song from the band, which we'll get into in the next album, has one of those moments in there and we'll yeah. talk about it, but yeah. Dave, it's now your chant time to shine here um because nirvana's success with nirva with Nevermind uh is often seen as the nail in the coffin for hair metal um this grunge and all that kind of stuff is just like known for like and i don't know why but uh you know you have this really manufactured um you know reality or manufactured look to bands like poison or motley Crue, or these big hair metal bands and then you have these guys in nirvana showing up to snl just playing in t-shirts and jeans and it for some reason hair metal just like died as soon as this kind of stuff came out i mean do you have any thoughts on that dave the 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 landscape of music prior to nirvana
0: well, I mean, you know, just like you you, you mentioned it, but I, I do remember seeing uh, my older siblings. Uh, I have memories and op- photo albums of their style changing. And so there are pictures of, like, birthday parties where the year before everyone's wearing, like, um, you know, neon-colored T-shirts and things like that. And then the next year everybody's wearing flannel and, and they're starting to grow out their hair very long. Um <clears throat> it's interesting to note as well that I think the black album came out the same year that this either the yeah, next Lars year, hated it. That's why and I think that's why Lars was pissed. But um yeah, it definitely changed so much of the musical landscape. It, I mean, we can't talk about that happening without mentioning bands like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, um, Pearl Jam and bands like that really kind of just taking over. I think the biggest thing that it did was it showed people that wanted to be musicians that liked hair metal that you don't have to be able to shred to play the, like uh, to be in a band to start jamming in high school with your friends like we were talking about earlier. Finally, you know, Eddie Van Halen is not the goal anymore. It's Kurt Cobain.
2: Yeah, I think I think a, a big thing to note would be that um, uh, to, to, to talk about what they like what Kurt and all them hated about Nevermind was that it was like you know mainstream but I think a lot of that was because these are like songs and like you said it's not people there's not showing off with their playing it's not um, you know it, it's not about the showmanship it's about the music and the song and the real like just being a person you know just being a musician and a person so uh, I think it, it becomes less about the shtick and more about just being genuine, and and yeah, there is that whole level where like you see the like the fashion change, and you see uh, like attitudes change, and you suddenly see like they talked about uh, something that they, like you know all the jocks who hated them in high school are at their shows and stuff like that. But I mean, I I really think it comes down to the fact that these are just songs, and you could you can equate that to like you, in the worst level you could say like oh you know fuck pop music and fuck like the simplicity of that sort of thing. Cause like a lot of people have that kind of attitude, but I think this is a great thing. I think it's a great thing to just have, you know, a chord progression and lyrics that are great. And we don't need to worry about all the other shit that goes into it. I mean, it's cool to have it, but it's not necessary. And I think that this was a proving point to that with rock.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can really hear the emotion. I think that was the thing is the, it that's, that's why it connected with the youth of that time is the, The angst and the way that Kurt, his vocal tracks are. And, you know, the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit is like these kids in an auditorium with like cheerleaders and uh, their cheerleading outfits have like the, what's that logo on it? Um, Like an anarchist logo or something like that. And they're all like dancing along to the song. The janitor's flailing the broom and the lights are going crazy. It's like moths to a flame. These kids want to be in that lifestyle. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, Adam, I don't think you've said a single word about this album. Do you have <laughs> any big thoughts, some big atomic bombs you've been waiting to drop?
3: Not not really, although I do think it's interesting Dave uh, mentioned his favorite song. That's also my favorite song off of here. Uh, we're twins. I think it's interesting that every song on this album could have been a single and could have been a bigger song, and it's just kind of strange that a lot of these are kind of forgotten since they weren't the single or didn't have a music video. But everything on this album is great. And yeah. it I think it's an accomplishment that the added money producing this album and recording it doesn't uh, like make it feel like it's a you know cash grab kind of thing. It doesn't feel manufactured. It feels genuine, like we were talking about. And that's I don't know, that's an accomplishment on its own.
1: I will say looking at the track list whenever before I started listening to it for this, um, I, I looked at it and I was like, oh, here are the songs I think I'm not going to like. The last third of the album, uh, I was like, those are all going to be snoozers. So like, Lounge Jack," Stay Away, and On a Plane. Because like, in my head, I was like, I can't remember other than the, I'm on a plane. I was like, I couldn't remember anything about those songs. And then I listened to it and I was like, oh shit. These songs are just as good as those other songs. So like, there's not a low point on this record. The, the I think the worst song is their hidden track, uh, the uh, last song, uh, "Endless Nameless," which is just like a jam and it's a noise jam. But if you're into noise music, it's pretty good too. So I, I really, yeah, no, ten out of ten would do again.
0: There were um, there were some songs on Bleach that weren't that didn't make the cut. I think there were three songs. Uh, do we know how many songs they recorded for Nevermind? Or was this, I wonder if it was just, these are the songs.
2: No, I, I, I bet they recorded more than that because of all the extra shit that's come out after the fact. But, I mean, I don't know, though. I mean, there were, like,
1: B-sides. This was in that time frame whenever you released a single, there was a B-side. So, like, um, the song Aneurysm, which is one of their, like, fan favorites, that was that was a B-side to Smells Like Teen Spirit. So, I, I can only assume that that came out at the same time.
3: I would assume there's a good amount of them because there've been a bunch of like anniversary releases and stuff that have come out with other songs that maybe were B sides, but also some of them sound like or look at least from the you know titles they have like rehearsal in them in the name, so it could be a song that
1: got cut. Yeah, it looks like there's a ton.
0: If you want to have a really cool experience with the recording process of this album, Butch Vig did a whole breakdown for people who are listening, I'm sure you guys have all seen it where he like pulls up the vocal tracks and pulls up the guitar tracks from several of these songs he, there. At one point he, he plays a uh, something in the way with just strings and Kurt's voice. And oh, it's, it's yeah amazing. And he talks about, he shows how, how good Kurt was at doubling his vocals. Okay. And, uh, okay. C-
2: Do you know about this? The doubling vocals thing? This is great. This is Butch Vig at his finest. This is why Butch Vig is amazing. <laughs> he made Cobain double track his vocals to make this to make the song sound like fuller, uh, and also so the label didn't have to like spend extra money to like get like a quote unquote lo fi sound. Uh, Cobain didn't want to do that because he thought that that would make it look like it, like they were losing like indie and punk credibility, which I didn't fully get. So apparently, basically, this goes for anything on the album. But Butch Vig to get Cobain to do the double track would just say John Lennon did it, and Kurt Cobain would do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Butch Vig is the man. <laughs>
2: he is so good. I read that and I was like, God, that's fucking genius. That's that that's that's how you fucking produce a little like a, a kid who just wants to do things his way. Is like, oh, you idolize John Lennon. John Lennon did that. Even if it's a lie, just go for it.
0: Next time, <laughs> Jackson. Next time, we're in the studio with Moniker. I'm going to go. Tom York did it.
2: Claudio did that. <laughs> okay, I was going to Cla- say Claudio did that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, that's interesting. That
3: uh, so the band picked him to be the producer, and then the label yeah, they waited wanted to for him. replace him with someone else. Like, can you imagine how different everything would be if they had gotten away
2: with that? Yeah, I think I think that they like. <laughs> that would suck ass if they yeah. got a different producer. This like Butch Vig was is a fucking hero. Like like yeah, such and a good. Producer. He's had
1: so much uh, you know credibility put on his name because of this album. But I can't help but wonder what he like if he ever listened to those interviews where they're trashing the album and just like he's probably sitting there on his you know pile of gold just thinking like oh
2: that hurts. Sad Butch. No, there's no fucking way. I think I don't the,
0: uh, shit. it just catapulted into a, an, just a whole new level.
2: Yeah, I mean, and also Butch Vig is like he's a punk guy, so you know when someone talks shit, I'm sure he's just like I don't care. Like I, I, I did what I did, and I'm cool with it. Um, and, and I mean, Dave, this,
0: Dave Grohl went back and worked with him later on with the Foo Fighters.
2: And it's
1: this is great. the last thing I will say about this album, and then I'm ready to move on. But every time I see a pitch, picture of Butch Vig. He looks kind of like uh, the guy that we mostly record with. Brack. Oh, he
2: a 1,000% looks like Brack. And 1, I feel really comfortable every time I see a picture of Butch. I'm like, oh, it's Brack. <laughs> yeah, he so looks like Brack. That's so funny. Um, okay, so time for the money shot. All right. Time for the money shot. Um, so this is, uh, again, uh, money- money-related question. This is not specific to Nirvana in this situation. It is about is related to Nirvana um so uh smells like teen spirit teen spirit was a deodorant brand uh the name from the album or the name from the song comes from a story of whatever blah 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 i don't want to tell the story um so the question i have for you is how much did colgate pay to acquire the deodorant brand teen spirit anyone know does, does anyone know this already
3: no Okay. I didn't even know this was a thing.
2: Six hundred
1: and six dollars and seventeen cents.
3: <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to ask how much they, you know, spent on this album, and I was going to say sixty thousand dollars and six hundred.
1: What's your Venmo, Adam?
3: <laughs> yeah, Jackson, please send me sixty thousand dollars.
2: So, great. so yeah, so uh, the so uh, again, like because of the success of this song, the deodorant Teen Spirit had success. Um, and so Colgate wanted to buy Teen Spirit. So they paid uh, an amount of money. Was it A, $100 million? B, $950,000? C, $5,700,000? D, 670, uh, $670 million?
1: I'm going to say C, which was like the $5 million one.
3: Yep. one. I'm going to go with gonna B, go to- which was not an absurd amount of money.
0: I'll go with D because it's Dave.
2: It is 100% D. Oh, Colgate spent Jesus. Colgate spent 670 million dollars to acquire the brand of <laughs> Teen Spirit because of the amount of success that Smells Like Teen Spirit was having. And also, if you listen to advertisements for Teen Spirit for the deodorant that came out at that time, there's like distorted guitar and like rock drums. <laughs> it's like it's the funniest shit. It's it, it's hysterical.
1: That's amazing. That's all Butch Gino- Vig needed to do is uh, if he ever heard them bitching about like, oh, it's not punk. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you just boost fucking smells like teen spirit or teen spirit sales from your punk song?
2: <laughs> so
3: Hagen, as part of your research, did you find out if that uh, acquisition paid off for them?
2: Uh, no, I didn't find out. No, that, that I, I just, uh, I, I don't know if it did. I, I would imagine that it probably didn't. I, I can't would imagine, imagine no. it did and here and here's the thing i mean to be fair they could have rebranded it but that would have totally failed the whole point uh because i mean do you guys see teen spirit deodorant around No, that's
0: what i was gonna say yeah
2: i yeah. mean it's not it's not a deodorant that you see i mean well it it it, it is a uh, a, a quote-unquote female deodorant it was it was branded as a female so of course we wouldn't necessarily see it um but yeah so uh that's uh <laughs> i don't know if it worked out probably didn't that's a lot of fucking money Good shit. So moving into the next
1: and final record that we're going to talk about today is 1993's In Utero. So just to put yourself back in that frame of mind, Nevermind had come out. They are touring extensively. There's a lot of controversy of Kurt Cobain overdosing and a lot of things like that were happening. It was very, um, you know, Kurt Cobain and the whole band, but mostly Cobain were like thrust into, uh, you know, Fame and just dealing with that at this time, also Kurt Cobain is dating Courtney Love, marries Courtney Love, has a child. Um, the band is grappling with the fame in the sense of, like, hey, you know, we really don't like that we're getting fame for this thing, all that kind of stuff. So, all that that I just mentioned really leads to In Utero, their third and final album.
2: At the time, can we, can we so also, real I, quick mention his overdosing so again he was he, he was getting really deep into heroin and uh do you guys know why he was taking heroin uh was it for was it the like, stomach pain yeah it, it was, was the for stomach, stomach pain he was taking heroin because he had stomach pains i mean like what the fuck there's other things you can do for that uh but that was that, that's what he said in interviews also mind you he said that in public, on pe- people were recording him. He said, I take heroin for stomach pain. Wild. Absolutely wild. <laughs>
0: well, the thing, unfortunately, the thing is he probably, at one point in time, did heroin to help with his stomach, because someone probably told him that, and then he got horribly hooked on it.
2: He he might have. I mean, that, that that's like, that totally is a fair point. I honestly, I, I, I you know, this is for a different time, but I I, I think that i of the camp that potentially he just says that um i think right. he just he just got addicted to heroin and just said that because it did help with the stomach pain probably but it wasn't that's not why he did heroin sorry go ahead jackson
1: no you're all good so we get into 1993s in utero um this you would not have this album's raw moments if there wasn't the band's desire to rebel against what made them, you know, massively successful in nevermind which you know for me i think is really cool that this was an exact response to there's a lot of stuff like i, I think it was whenever slayer's rain and blood came out it was arguably it, it was their fastest record like uh, speed wise and for them how did they follow that up they made their slowest record And it's interesting seeing bands like this who are uber successful or how do they follow up their biggest album? Um, And I really, I just like this album for me, uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it in utero is Nirvana's best album. It is like quintessential to me. I think it is perfect album. I think it does everything that Bleach does well and does it better. And I think it takes all the 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 really the pop elements of Nevermind and just says fuck it, it's fine. We also write uh, catchy hooks, but also here is a really raw recording of it. And I think, goddamn, it's such a perfect set of songs. And I love this album to death. And like, I think it's really funny going back to like how they I feel they just have disrespected Butch Fig at that time period their response was to get Steve Albini, who was known as being this, you know, underground producer and producing all these, you know, really heavy, uh, you know, rough around the edges records at the time. So that was kind of their uh, approach to the record. And I think it's really worth noting uh, the way Steve Albini approach approaches recording is he'll set up basically all these mics inside the room. And I know that sounds like you're like, well, what, don't they already do that? But it was very much the way he did it was, hey, we're going to capture the band playing. We're not trying to like, hey, let's put this uh, perfectly here. It was very much of like, hey, in this room, uh, we're going to get some reverb from the vocals and the cymbals probably around this corner of the room, so we're going to set up a mic there, that kind of stuff, which I think is super cool, and I think it really comes through on this album because it is polished, but it's not nearly as polished as Nevermind was. I'm going
2: to go ahead and be uh, a little controversial here and say that i got pretty bored halfway through this album and i don't really know i could you know it could have been a mood thing it could have been totally a mood thing where it just wasn't working out for me um i don't know what happened i took my headphones off halfway through and i was like i'm taking a break i can't do this right now uh and i i think that before i really like say i don't like this album i will say that uh, the drum sounds on this album are perfect, unbelievably perfect. Every time I hear a kick hit, I'm just like, oh, oh it's so like rounded. And because like, because it, it is, it is so, it does perfect a lot of what Bleach was doing. And every time I hear a bass drum hit in Bleach, I thought like, ah, this sounds like, again, it sounds like a young kid, you know, recording for the first time. But and I, I don't know the drum kits that were being used in either, either situation, but I know Dave grawl and I know that whatever they were using in that space was the perfect kick drum and the sound that was coming out of it was unbelievably perfect.
1: They supposedly use like 30 mics around the, just for the drums.
0: Yeah, he said that he uh, he thought of, or he thinks of the drums like he thinks of a piano in that you wouldn't put a mic on every piano string. So why would you mic every drum?
2: And I think of a guitar like I think of a drum kit. <laughs> <laughs> got that's the what, low
0: notes is the kick drum and the high notes is the snare drum
2: that's what our that's what our fucking favorite dave Groll says about about a guitar and i i hate him so much for saying that shit
0: <laughs> so this was this was recorded at uh pachyderm studio which was uh, a place that was like away from uh civilization which they did on purpose because at this point kurt was clean or trying to be clean. Oh yeah, um, it,
2: it's it, it it's like very very always trying. That's not yeah. You know, it's not a bad thing, but it's always trying.
0: Well, the the purpose of it was to have uh, lodging on, right next to the studio, so they didn't have to get buses anywhere or you know travel to the studio every day, and uh, so that Kurt wouldn't have time to be influenced by the local drug dealers that he knew to get back into doing the stuff that he was doing also steve albini knew the people that own the studio it's not his studio and he didn't tell them that nirvana was recording there because they really didn't want any attention being brought to the studio it wasn't until they showed up with uh, the travel the road cases that said nirvana on it that the owners were like holy shit nirvana's recording here
1: and there was a. Uh, um Apparently, Steve Albini, like at listening, you think Butch Vicks sounds like this really wholesome, like, hey, good job, guys. Uh, Steve Albini was like the exact opposite. Like, listening to him, he even shit talked uh, the production on Nevermind. And he sounds like such an asshole uh, when you hear him talk about things. But he even said stuff like, oh, I took, he takes the mentality, and especially for this session, he took the mentality of, No one, I will not talk to anyone but the band. So even if somebody were calling me and all that kind of stuff, like needing to get a hold of me, I would not talk to them if they were not in the band. Only the band could talk. And for that reason, he was like effectively able to shut out any uh, interference from the label or anything like that. And he convinced the band to pay for all the production costs with the band's money because he said, hey, if you do this, we'll be able to really uh, steer clear of them being able to say, hey, well, we're paying for this album. You need to do this. And apparently it worked out well for them.
0: It worked out well for them. It ultimately ended up fucking him because uh, the label actively tried to smear his reputation after the release of this record, and it worked. And he said that he basically went broke for the next two years after the release of that record, which is like... Pretty wild to think about. Another thing to note is that Steve Albini, as a producer, doesn't take points on records. Which means he doesn't get royalties for the rest of his life for recording this record or any other record. And when you hear him talk yeah. about why he does that, he doesn't sound like such an asshole. But he is living in a fantasy, utopian, punk world.
1: Yeah, no, he doesn't sound like an asshole when he explains that. And like, I think the most famous quote from him is, Hey, if the guy builds there if a guy builds a house for you and you live in that house do you pay him every single year you know royalties on your house or something like that no you pay for the house outright and then you're done you're gone the guy's on to his next house that kind of stuff so he ended up taking a flat fee of a hundred thousand dollars which a lot of people are like oh shit that's a lot of money but he stood to earn as much as half a million dollars from Uh, the points he would have gotten on this record. So that's a huge dent in what it could have been. But it's a real, it is a real, you know, idealistic view and very cool of him. But also I guarantee you Nirvana would have been like, dude, just take the money if they had ever had the conversation. But I guarantee you he just said it and they are like, cool, whatever. Let's move on and record.
0: Let's record the record. Yeah, because the way he describes it, he says uh, that, when it comes to, they, they call it points for anyone's listening who maybe doesn't know that, uh, you get certain points at, from a record as a producer, you get certain points as a songwriter, certain points as a member of the band and certain points as the label executive, as the manager and as the engineer and blah, blah, blah. But with the producers that comes out of the band's points. So Steve Albini would have been taking money directly from the band. And he said that, uh, he didn't feel right about that for that example that jackson just gave but also that uh they were already fronting the money for a lot of other stuff that went with it production distribution and all that kind of thing right so cause... he was like artists are getting fucked anyway i don't want to fuck them further
3: well and he he suggested they pay outright for the session right
0: because yeah. they
3: they fought or maybe not them but he thought that the the label was going to interfere which sure enough they did in different ways yeah
1: yeah so i the opening lyric of this album is one of those lyrics that like so the opening lyrics is lyric is teenage angst has paid off well now i'm bored and old and that is very much you don't have to read into it it's very much him saying like oh never mind was super successful but like hey That's boring. Let's move on. Um, And that's one of those lyrics that like, I remember when the force awakens came out, the the seventh star Wars movie. And the first line in the movie is something like, hopefully this will make things start to make things right. And I remember everybody was theorizing like, Oh shit, that's a slight to saying like all the other movies suck. We're going to make this better. And it's so funny thinking that like, there's one of those lyrics in the first uh, track of this uh, album. right.
0: I'd never really listened to this the full way through. Um, but I also didn't realize how many songs from it. I knew. Yeah. I had the and same I think, Hagan. That's bad. what kept me interested. Uh, that's what kept me interested in. It was that, uh, when I would get a little bored, um, <clears throat> the next song would be a song that I know.
2: Yeah. I, I mean that, that makes sense. And I, I and again, like, I, I don't know where my boredom came from cause it could be totally unfair. Um, I, I took I took my headphones off when I was listening to it, and I, I like, set them down, and I was like, I, I'm over this right now. And I, I couldn't tell you if that came from a place of, like, this music is just not working for me, but it also could be this music is not working for me in this exact moment. Um, because there is something that you need to – I would say that, like, you can listen to Nevermind almost any time because the songs – and the players and the production—they serve it so unbelievably well. And it's not that it doesn't do that uh, for *In Utero*, but it, it, these songs are different, and the style is different, and it requires a different, um, a different kind of ear uh, to really just enjoy it the whole way through. So, um, and it
1: does have some of their
2: bigger songs like heart-shaped box is i think one of their biggest songs and all apologies well and that's the thing that i'll say also about like uh i'm listening to it and i'm like oh man i am like i i'm I'm almost done right (laughs) i just pressed the air horn button sorry um (laughs) i'm like almost (laughs) done with the album and i'm you know i'm like looking i'm 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 looking at the track listing and i'm like oh man like I. just just so much and then All Apologies comes on and I just feel immediate emotion because right. I know that song I love that song and I felt so good I was like so tired from the rest of from so many points of the album and suddenly I was just like I feel really good and I'm sure Kurt Cobain would hate that I said that I'm sure he'd be <laughs> like you can go fuck yourself like the rest of that album is 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 where I'm sure he sat and 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 like like he sat comfortably in those parts of the album. And I'm sure All Apologies was a very different thing.
0: Uh, should we trigger warning about about one of the songs before we talk about it?
1: Yeah, so that song, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting song. Uh, we're obviously referring to "Rape Me, which is a really good song, but it's really hard to listen to it. In yeah. a, like, you know, hey... I don't know. It, it feels weird even though it's a great song and it, it is very much, a, you know, even Kurt Cobain will refute this, but it's very much him talking about his public spotlight and how he felt he was treated in the media and treated
2: by his fans and record label. He said that it wasn't that. He, well, but, well, whatever, whatever reason he chose to name that song, it's the wrong reason because that's the wrong name and the wrong, like, that's like, Absolutely. Uh, so there's a, there's like a, a number of criticisms that I've read about Nirvana and that is one of the ones that always comes up is it's like, why, why is this song called rape me? Like that's so inappropriate and that's so not okay. um But yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of Nirvana fans will, will cite that, you know, it's a punk attitude. It's, it's, it's the kind of like. I don't give a fuck attitude, which now punk attitude is like we care about everybody. <laughs> and yeah, we're, I mean, and we're so like lo- I mean, and I think punk attitude was like that before, but it definitely uh it definitely had a little bit more leeway to it, right? It was
0: 1993 too, so that was a very uh, we're we're way further along now than we were in 1993.
1: Hey, I will give y'all's boy, Dave Grohl, some credit. Um, There was an interview at the same time, uh, right before In Utero was coming out, where he talked about the punk mentality, and he was like, we don't need your sexism, racism, and homophobia in our music. And I was just like, damn, Dave
2: Grohl, in the fucking early 90s, you're being an ally? Good for you, fam. And and how old was (laughs) Dave Grohl when he said that, too? Since he was right. the youngest of the band. I mean, he, yeah, he, he was he was so young to be able to, to have that mindset and say it in an interview. Incredible.
0: It's because his mom's a teacher.
2: Yeah, definitely
1: helps. So I'm gonna, you know, it, it seems like everybody has a different mindset on this album except for me because I think this album is perfect. I think it's way better than Nevermind. And I say that, you know, after saying Nevermind is so fucking good. So when I say this is good, I don't mean that, oh, that means nevermind sucks, but let me give you a quick overview of how I feel about this album. Uh, I've already said, you know, how, you know, it really blends and does what each of its predecessors did well and does them better and also takes out the, you know, what I would call trimming the fat, um, but... All you need to do is listen to the first two tracks of the album and you'll get a really good sense of what this album is. Because Serve the Servants is what I said. It's an immediately it's kinda like a slam track to like, oh, fuck y'all for making me feel this way, and here's how I've felt this year, um, or these past couple years. And it's really polished. It has a it has really catchy hooks and it is not as aggressive as you would expect a Nirvana song to come out as. It has, you know, the really poignant lyrics like uh, "I tried hard to have a father, but instead I had a dad." Um, that is, it hits in a really different way. That's really just like heart wrenching. A lot of the stuff on this album. Is. I didn't really get that long. Uh It was just talking about he had a really strained relationship with his dad, and basically he said that, it, you know, he tried having a relationship with him, but he never did. Uh, It was just kind of, he was very an auxiliary component in his life. And then the next lyric is, uh, I don't, I just want you to know, I don't hate you anymore. Um, And he basically said in interviews, like, I don't hate my dad anymore. I don't want to have a relationship with him, but, you know, I just want him to know, like, you know, I really wanted to have a relationship with you and I'm past that at this point. So I don't know, everything about Kurt Cobain's life is really, you know, kind of heart wrenching. um, Yeah. And, I, we'll discuss that later. Um, and then, so that first uh, song, really polished, and then going into Scentless Apprentice, which, wow, fucking great song. It is immediately- yeah, the, the intro. Yeah, it's a, immediately uh, way more jagged. It's a lot more just like, oh, this sounds like a fucking punk song. It sounds like you just threw up some mics in the room and here's the fucking uh, album. So there's a pretty good split of- both of the those styles of songs throughout this whole album. I mean, you have, I don't know why, but the sixth track on the album, Dumb, a lot of people call their Beatlesque song. I have listened to it over and over. It's a really good song, but uh, it's one of the only songs that Kurt Cobain's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, Cobain, has said that she liked. She said she doesn't like grunge, but she does like the song Dumb, which, you know, little tidbit for you. But it's a really good song, but I don't understand why they say it's beatlesque. But, you know, that's another one of those really polished songs. All Apologies is really polished. Um, then you have my favorite Nirvana song ever is Milk It, which is just this like heavy, borderline noise track. It is so fucking good and it I just like and I I don't think most people would agree with me on this, but I think it is so good. Um, and if you're What's looking your to get outside your favorite Nirvana of- song Absolutely, hands down. I wouldn't even have to think about it if I had a chance. If somebody was like, "Hey, play some Nirvana," I'd play "Milk It." I think that is such a good song, and there in in, before the last chorus in the song, there's a little chuckle. You can hear Kurt Cobain basically does this like laugh into the chorus, and if you haven't heard it, it's just like it's pretty endearing to me. Um, But every time I hear that little chuckle before the last chorus, it always gets me. I had a friend who pointed that uh, out to me and said that he liked to think that Kurt was look- looked over at Dave Grohl at the mo at that moment and Dave Grohl made a funny face or something and that's probably not what happened but to me I think that's an endearing idea uh, for a pretty grim track but I love that song and this whole album I mean I am never going to just like of my own accord put on Nevermind. It's just too steeped in pop culture for me, even though the songs are great. I'll never skip In Bloom. I'll never skip those songs, but I'm never going to put it on. Um, I would actively put on In Utero any day. I think this is a perfect album. I, th- I think it's amazing.
0: It's unfortunate that pop culture has ruined your relationship with such a great album.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, like, uh, that's that's so annoying. Uh, I I I wish it was different. Cause Nevermind. Wow, just... I'm being positive over here, and I feel like I'm getting shit on. Well,
1: no, I mean, we're it's, we're, it's, we're no, being positive. No, no. But look, yeah, you want you, you want me you to shit on
0: you? You you sound like a fucking hipster right now. That's really what <laughs> we're we're dancing around. You can't listen to yeah. Nevermind because it's too steeped in pop culture. But you love In Utero because it's not like that.
3: And your favorite song <laughs> on this album is a song I don't remember.
0: I don't yeah, know. it's a fucking noise track. That's shitting on you what i did say was i'm sad that pop culture ruined your relationship with such a great album
1: i'm going to be quiet for the rest of the album or for the rest of the episode because i know sometimes i can come off that way but this is like I, these are my genuine emotions i used to you, cover penny Royalty with moniker before either of you fuckers were in the band you let's do
0: hey let's let's pick Wait, it does, up let's cover it does that mean you, you clarified had another basis? no thank
1: you
2: <laughs> huh, in utero sucks you, you clarified you clarified before i don't know if it was at the beginning but you clarified at some point that i mean like the, the that it was that it was definitely i mean it's not that never mind you've said it multiple times not that nevermind was a bad album i mean like i yeah. don't i don't i don't think i think that we can easily obviously give you shit for saying that it's like hipster ish quote unquote but i think the big thing is that you're you're 100 correct in saying that pop culture is I'm not gonna say fucked, but it like it changed a lot of these songs. It put them in a different landscape. I mean, it's like you could hear a Nirvana song in an indie movie. I mean, that changes that changes things. I was yeah. walking around the house cleaning some stuff, and I had my headphones in, and 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 my fiance is like hanging up Christmas lights in the house, and I like sang a bit of one of the hits, and she was singing it for the next 20 minutes because that's how that's how these songs are, and that's not a bad thing. I and one a- of
1: the like most heartbreaking songs on that record something in the way was in the most recent the Batman trailer so if that just goes to show you how like handholdy that record is with like pop culture and stuff yeah. nowadays it, yeah i you know You guys called me the H word, and you guys that (laughs) no, 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 we didn't, (laughs) we
0: didn't, we didn't, we didn't. You, you,
2: you, you, you you gave us shit because you, you said you were giving. We said that you said that we were giving you shit. We We weren't giving you shit. We were trying to be nice, and then you opened the floodgates, and Dave went off. And I'm so happy (laughs) I didn't have to go off because I've been trying to be nice to you, so I backpedaled further.
0: I'm not calling you the H word.
2: He's done. He's over it. He's, he's he out. Has, he has he has the most notes, too. We're fucked. <laughs> no, I,
0: I understand that sentiment. Thanks though. for I, joining I... us, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Nirvana episode. <laughs> uh, I do love the fact that they named a song Radio Friendly Unit Shifter. I'll I love that's, that. That's great.
1: Yeah, th- there were a lot of working titles for this record that they ended up not being able to use. Like... uh they wanted to call it i hate myself and want to die which is not funny at all uh knowing what happens to her cobain
3: I mean some of that had to be trying to start something with the label right to some degree
2: uh yeah, yeah. i think i think that like uh both so like the fact that he, the fact that the, they wanted to name that, it that you're right isn't funny but it's something that very unfortunately everybody uses as either a point to say that he did want to kill himself or a point to say like, no, he was a kid making jokes. He didn't want to like, cause like, you know, you look at a lot of his lyrics and they're kind of like, like, I don't know. They feel hammy at times. He's 27. Exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> I'm not. No. Cause I, I, like, how, like how many times have I said they're kids, right? Yeah. They're fucking kids. He's a kid. It's insane. Three albums, seven
0: years. Yeah. That's his life.
1: They also thought about calling the album Verse Chorus, Verse.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, I was going to say, for being the album that follows, never mind, this album is really good. And it's made even more impressive just looking at how quickly these all came out. Like, they continued to put out really great stuff, even with that success and having to go record in the middle of nowhere to kind of avoid the fame of it
0: they had they had some songs uh for nevermind i think before before bleach maybe am i correct in saying that this might be the first album where they didn't have any songs they wrote all of these ones either during the touring cycle for nevermind or maybe right after recording nevermind
3: at the very least like after that album was done
0: yeah so that's like really impressive.
1: I think it gets really hazy. There's a lot of uh, instances, especially in the 90s and prior, where people associate artists as like, "Oh, you are coming out with a new album. You wrote all these uh, songs between you know the this your prior release and now." Um, but and a lot of bands got away with that and said that they did, especially now in those times because. You know Kurt Cobain is like he contradicts himself in every um, you know interview. Whether or not that's on purpose, Uh, he says a lot of things like, "Oh well," because people would point out a song and be like, "Oh well, this is obviously about this," and he would say, "Oh well, that was written before Bleach was even released," and say stuff like that. But like you just know, like it's an unreliable narrator at some points when it comes to the band, and it's not just Kurt, but he is just obviously the most notable one at that point in all of their careers um so and then like but like nowadays we know like there's a radiohead song that was on their most recent album in 2016 called true love waits which is like been a song that they have had written since the 90s and you know they have never shied away from saying like oh yeah we've worked on this song for decades that kind of stuff but I, i think it was very normalized this idea of like oh this artist wrote these songs between this time period so i think that's a bit of a unhealthy expectation on you know your artists but you know is what it is
0: i think uh, i would also argue that it's it's great for artists to pull from their back catalog before they really made it big because there is like the curse of the second album which is You know, you form a band and then you don't you don't you're not famous for the first five or seven or ten years and you spend all that time crafting your first record and then you try to duplicate that and make a really good second record. And that's where a lot of bands get fucked. But with Nirvana, it's the exact opposite. Like, never mind is their second record is by far and above their biggest record.
2: Right.
1: Yep. So I'm gonna, you know, let you guys wrap this up. But I,
2: I, I want to, Jackson, I want to ask you a question first. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a personal question that I was thinking about the entire it. time that we were that I was listening to this? Uh, and if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. Uh, but I, I, I am very curious how much. Kurt Cobain and the aesthetic and the music of Nirvana inspired you in your songwriting and your creation of Moniker? I would say, you know, it was probably
1: really subconscious when it comes to uh, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana themselves. Um, But so probably a lot, but it was mostly subconscious when it comes to actually Nirvana. I was really influenced by stuff like Modest Mouse, which, you know, was around the same time, but way less uh, successful at that same time period. So, but I, I don't think you would have a modest mouse without a yeah, you know, you know a Nirvana. So probably a lot. And um, you know, I say this as I'm wearing what I every time I put it on, I call it my MTV unplugged cardigan because it <laughs> yeah. looks exactly like Kurt Cobain's cardigan.
0: I didn't want to bring that up
1: probably a lot um you know and i'm not ashamed of that at all because as i said they have two perfect albums and one really like diamond and a rough album in my opinion i
2: I think that while i was listening to it i kind of thought about um you know for 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 our listeners uh if if you haven't listened to to our band moniker uh we're a three-piece and um there's like a lot of there's a lot of levels in like the songwriting and the recording that like remind me sometimes of Jackson's favorite band, but at the end of the bands, but at the end of the time at the end of the day, it always feels like there's this just natural songwriting and rawness that comes into it. Um And so as I was listening to these albums, I was like, I think that this, this is a very big thing and it works out perfectly because of Dave Grahl. And, 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 you know, our obsession with Dave Grawl, but, uh, you know, it, it, definitely, it's something that like really clicked with me is like, I think, I think that this, whether it's conscious or subconscious is a really big part of how our band came to be. And we already mentioned, I mean, like the jamming of bands, you know, nowadays, it wouldn't be the same if it wasn't for bands like Nirvana, but you, you know, you begin to think how many bands would, you know, would exist if or wouldn't exist if there wasn't Nirvana. Right. Oh yeah, Absolutely.
0: Going back to before when you asked, Hagan, when you asked me about, uh, Chris, Chris, is it Chris? It's Chris. I hate that. Chris's playing. So is uh, that, is
2: that, is that your answer to my question about how you feel about Chris playing? I hate his name.
0: I hate his name, but he's a great bass player. <laughs> no. Um, when I, I, I brought up the story of me being able to having the opportunity to play Smells Like Teen Spirit, I did find myself trying to imitate, subconsciously trying to imitate his, the way he. Uh, carries himself on stage. And I was, like, jumping up and down and, like, changed the way I was holding my pick. And it was totally, like, <laughs> just childish of me just being, like, this is so much fun. I get to finally, like, act like Christ. <laughs> yeah. So, it's yeah, it's, a, it's unmistakable. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. And, in fact, if you don't have influences, go get you some because they'll help you a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I, there's just something special about about Nirvana and about each member of Nirvana in their own right. Especially, I mean, obviously Kurt Cobain is is uh, obviously an influence in so many ways for so many people, but there's something about the entire aesthetic and ideal of Nirvana, like we talked about with with these albums, how they feel like a three-piece so much of the time, and they feel like energy, and they feel like emotion, and they feel like rawness, that you can tell when a modern-day musician liked nirvana right you can right. tell when they listened to that and that at least that style of music you know when when the when the emotion and the rawness became more important than the flashiness and the musicality right um so yeah i i think that's a really that's a really important thing to note are you guys ready for the money shot the final money shot
0: before we do that i have two quick things to bring up about uh utero. uh steve albini said that kurt mostly sang the entire album in one day like when he recorded it, he wanted it to be. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, and he wouldn't let him double track his vocals. In stark contrast <laughs> to the previous record, he specifically would not let him double track. I bet. But
2: I bet. The, I bet Kurt was like, "But John Lennon did it. But, but John Lennon, can I do it? <laughs> I'm going to call Butch. Uh,
0: but the other thing, the other thing, um, Steve Albini said was that Kurt always wanted to be playing an instrument while he was singing. And one of the things he brought to the studio was a rain stick. And when they were listening to the first playbacks of of like early in the day of the vocals, uh, Kurt was like, what's that sound? And Steve Albini was like, it's your fucking rain stick. (laughs) So he he was like, all right, well, let me grab something else. He ended up recording his vocals while holding uh, a very broken acoustic guitar with less than the required amount of strings on it. And Steve Albini says if you listen close enough in some of those tracks, it's not double-tracked acoustic on purpose. It's just Kurt strumming along to the song while he's singing.
2: That's cool. But imagine
0: him doing all those vocals in one day. Like doing uh, um, Milk It, Tourette's Radio-Friendly Unit Shifter, and then All Apologies.
3: (laughs) And while playing a rain stick.
0: And while playing (laughs) a rain stick.
2: (laughs) It's crazy because I can't imagine him doing that because of the way that he sings and performs. It's not a bad thing. It's just like the way that he sings is it, – it, it's not it, – it's something that, like, I'm sure that he was, one, genetically inclined for, which is a, a always an interesting point when you think about vocals. Like, you know, you try to imagine someone doing what, what another singer does, and it's like, oh, that's impossible. It's like I bet they're just genetically inclined for it. I bet their vocal cords and whatever are just more – ready and the other thing is that i mean like it just fit him e- like every time you heard it it was like yep sounds like him even if maybe he was like horse or something you know
0: yeah and he does have a really um original
2: yeah, voice it's very unique it's very very unique um all right money shot time <laughs> and this money shot's gonna lead me into a little uh a little spiel uh so uh this final question is uh a little bit of a downer at Kurt Cobain's worst. How much was he spending a day on heroin? Uh, A, $400. B, $20. C, $100. D, $1,000. Uh,
0: I'll say A.
3: I don't know anything about heroin pricing, but I'm going to go. <laughs> no, I mean,
0: just uh for the record, neither do
1: I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say Tree Fitty.
2: <laughs> okay. I didn't know that was an option. Yeah, it, it, it's an op- it's only an option for Jackson though. Um, so uh, he spent a four hundred dollars at his worst four hundred dollars a day on heroin. Some sources report that it's a hundred dollars, um, but I mean it, the important thing to note is at his worst he was spending four hundred dollars a day on heroin. Uh, Courtney Love was only spending twenty dollars a day on heroin. So there's that little juxtaposition. I wonder for how you. that happened. <laughs> I like
1: this idea of being. You know, going to your local drug dealer, support your local businesses, everyone, and uh <laughs> them handing you like a little like a little cardboard uh piece of paper that just says like black tar, and it just has right next to it uh, market value like at like a nice sushi place, <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, it's so uh, it's... um go ahead, I was gonna wrap us up, so you say. <laughs> Um, so uh, we're going to we're, we're trying something out a little bit new for uh, next week. We're going to uh, do something that's uh, I guess I guess we're, we're right now kind of calling it like music stories. So um, next week we're going to uh, talk about the life and death of Kurt Cobain, uh, much less about the music and more about the details of his life and what led to his death. And we will propose yes. both sides of the concept of if he committed suicide, or if uh, he was killed. Um, so it's going to be interesting. Um, we really appreciate all of you who are going to listen and bear with us. And uh, it, I'm excited personally. I'm very excited. This is uh, this is something that I'm very interested in, and uh, I'm excited to to watch documentaries again, read books again. And uh, I will be whether or not I. Believe it or not, I think I will be arguing for the side that he was murdered. I think that's what I'm on. Well,
1: that that's enough of a uh, tease for next week, and we'll let you decide that, Hagen, before then. But uh, I am not going to let us wrap this up in a traditional way uh, because I don't want to hear everyone's favorite album after how I was treated. Um <laughs> Oh. Uh, how come there's no international? no, 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 no Jackson wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Day. Wait, wait, wait. You know hold what on. I'm saying? Jackson, I, want,
2: I, I, I actually have been thinking about this for a couple weeks now, and this is the perfect opportunity for me to formally apologize for how mean I've been to you in the past like month and a half of episodes. And I thought about this. What is, uh, You're not ahead.
1: the first person to do this, by the way, this week. You are not the first person <laughs> to formally apologize oh to me. God. And I was just like. Man, what well, is up with everyone? Twenty twenty is fucking holidays. everyone up. It's
2: well, it's, it's the, the holidays. Part. Everybody
3: feels, feels bad right it, now for treating you like shit all year.
2: I think, I think uh, we 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 had we had like some episodes where I was pretty harsh, and we I think received some feedback about that, and I think I received some feedback about that, and uh, I, I I thought about it, and uh, you know, I think that I I you deserve an apology from me. Um, so on air. On
1: air, on we'll see. Air. It, uh, you know, we'll see how I feel about this apology when I edit this tomorrow, because we'll see if it makes the cut. I appreciate the, the apology, and just because Hagen's apologizing uh, does not mean I'm going to stop being positive or trying to be positive. I don't think that's up to me to decide whether or not I'm positive. But <laughs> before we wrap up the episode, thank you again for everyone who's listening, and of course, we're going to go more into detail uh, next week. But Nirvana, after in utero, did end up dissolving because Kurt Cobain's death, and uh, at the uh, the very young age of twenty seven, and I am only twenty six. The rest of y'all are older than twenty seven, and just thinking about like, wow, only twenty seven years of living—that's a really sad thing, and it's such a short life. Um, so. Definitely, we'll be talking about that more into detail next week. But of course, if uh, anybody's having a hard time, dark thoughts, anything like that, uh, please reach out. You can reach out to us. Uh, All of us would be happy to talk to you, but you have people who care about and love you. But that being said, don't let Nirvana be uh, completely tarnished by uh, the tragedy that ended up ending the band. Because even though these are grim songs, they have so much more than a singer who happened to have a tragic, you know, backstory and a tragic life. And I think I speak for all of us. We all highly recommend listening to Nirvana and all three of their albums are great. Um, You know, one may be better than the other, but who am I to say? Uh, So thank you again for listening. Next week, we'll be going a little bit more into detail of the actual personal lives of the band. So thank you very much. And, uh, Fuck off
0: Gimme a time